Sightings of 78. Part 1. Valentich. 1978 is an often overlooked year, as few people see the importance 78 has to play in the world stage. Events such as the birth of the first test tube baby, the first cellular mobile phone, and the computer game Space Invaders are launched. The year also boasted, like many others, a far darker side, with events such as cult leader Jim Jones finally ending his People's Temple in Guyana with a mass suicide command. The serial killer David Berkowitz, son of Sam, is convicted of murder after terrorising New York and film director Roman Polanski flees to France hours before he is to be formally sentenced for rape and other charges against a child. All these things are the items of history that can be found in any or all history books. But there were two events in 1978 that stood out head and shoulders above the rest, and today precious few people are aware of them. October the 21st and December the 31st are two of the most important days in 1978, as well as two of the most important dates in the history of ufology. In my research, I can only find one sighting from the 21st, whereas the 31st has a plethora of stories to choose from. For example, on that date at 7 o'clock p.m. in Bayford, a Mr. and Mrs. Mason sighted a mysterious cigar-shaped object moving through the sky. The UFO had a long body with lots of tiny lights. In Carlisle, Cumbria, a silver triangle crossed the sky from west to east. Another triangle with a grey hue crossed the sky from west to east in Scotland. And another huge triangle was seen flying in the same direction over Hull in the United Kingdom. At 1 o'clock a.m. in Posada, Italy, a three-metre-in-diameter glowing sphere appeared. It had dark triangular spots that moved back and forth on its surface. And at 3 p.m. in Homestead, Florida, three men saw a silver disc hovering one block away from where they lived. A Mr. Betancourt described the UFO as being between 40 to 50 feet in diameter and having no visible engine or wings, and it was making no noise. It hovered for about 30 seconds before flying off. And finally, in Zermatt, Switzerland, at 10 o'clock p.m., two witnesses observed a luminous round object over the Alpine glaciers, brightly illuminating the ice. All these sightings are scattered around the world, but for a small point in time, two specific encounters with the unexplained shared the same geographical location and similar traits. Although never officially confirmed as connected, could it actually be possible that in some way they are? Twenty-first of October. 1978. A light airplane, a rented single-engine Cessna, 182-litre design with the registration of VHDSJ, had left Victoria's Morabin Airport at 6.19pm and was being piloted over the Bass Strait in a south-eastwardly direction towards the location of King Island. The pilot of the Cessna, was 20-year-old Frederick Valentich, and this 125-mile training flight to Kings Island was going well, with good flying conditions reported. The previous year had been a difficult and disappointing one for Frederick. It had been his lifelong dream to become a pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force, but such a dream was dashed when he was rejected on the grounds of his inadequate education. Frederick had decided to fall back on his second choice to become a commercial pilot. But a dream like this had to be achieved in increments. Step one, he had joined the Air Training Corps and had successfully obtained his private licence. 
and step two, he was continuing his studies on a part-time basis in order to fulfill his secondary dream. Frederick had failed all five of his course exam subjects and retaken them only to fail again. The previous month, Frederick was to escalate his mounting failures by failing yet another three exam subjects, as well as being involved in three flying incidents, these of which had made him stand out to authorities for all the wrong reasons. Frederick had been called up in front of the officials where he had the charges presented before him. The first was for straying into a controlled restricted zone in Sydney. Frederick only received a warning for this one, but the citations he had received for both the flying deliberately into a cloud blindly incidents were more than justified. But what he did not expect was the impending threat of prosecution these last charges carried with them. The October the 21st, 1978 flight was Frederick's second solo night flight, as he had had a Class 4 instrument rating, which meant he could operate at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions. Conditions for flying were perfect, until Frederick reported what he believed was another aircraft passing over him. He immediately relayed this event to the Melbourne Air Flight Service, asking if there was any known traffic below 5,000 feet, to which controller Steve Roby stated in the negative, an answer that would be repeated throughout their radio exchange. Well, he just made a standard position report over Cape Lockway with an estimate for King Island. Um, I think he said he was operating below 5,000, and that was it. Valentich continued to tell the controllers that something was indeed flying close to his vicinity. When asked by the controllers if he could identify it as an aircraft, Valentich said he could not. He was insistent that the object was not an aircraft and in fact repeated the statement several times to the air traffic controller. Frederick stated that the craft had passed about a thousand feet, 300 meters, above him. He described the object as having at least four illuminated lights and a single illuminated green one. The shape of the object was described as elongated and shiny on the outside, almost to a metallic finish. The unidentified object proceeded to travel out of sight at an extreme speed. This hampered Valentich in its identification the object then approached him again from a different angle, the east, and repeated this a couple of times. Towards the end of this communication, Frederick Valentich started to complain that the engine of his plane was starting to rough idle and cough. The air traffic controller asked Frederick what his intentions were, and Frederick replied that he was heading to Kings Island, and then abruptly stated that the strange aircraft was now hovering on top of him again. A transcript of the sound recording then states that the communication goes silent for two seconds, and then Valentich is heard saying that the craft was hovering, and that it is not an aircraft. The transcript then states that the recording goes silent for 17 seconds, with the ambient hiss of an open microphone and an accompanying audible unidentified staccato noise, communication was lost, and no sign of Frederick or the Cessna were ever seen again. What follows is the transcript of the six-minute exchange with the air traffic controller Steve Roby. This has been slightly abridged, but has been taken from the audio tape transcription and reenacted here. Transcript. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. I am... seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot affirm. It is... four bright... it seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Roger. And it is a large aircraft? Confirm? 
uh, unknown due to the speed it's traveling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. It's approaching, right now from due east towards me. Silence for two seconds. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times, at a time at speeds I could not identify. Roger, what is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand, four, five, zero, zero. And confirm you cannot identify the aircraft? Affirmative. Roger, stand by. It's not an aircraft, it's... Silence for two seconds. Can you describe the uh, aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Silence for three seconds. Cannot identify more than that. That it has such speed. Silence for three seconds. It is before me right now, Alban. And how large would the uh, object be? It seems like it's stationary. What am I doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and a sort of metallic light. It's all shiny on the outside. Silence for five seconds. It's just vanished. Would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it military aircraft? Confirm the uh, aircraft just vanished. Say again? Is the aircraft still with you? It's, uh, not. Silence for two seconds. Now approaching from the southwest. The engine is, is rough idling. I've got to set at 23.24 and the thing is coughing. Roger, what are your intentions? My intentions are, are to go to King Island. Uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Silence for two seconds. It is hovering, and it's not an aircraft. Just listening to him, I can still remember it distinctly. Um, the way he was speaking to me in a broken communication, a form of uh, hesitant communication. He definitely sounded uh, as if he was under stress. And I could just picture him sort of in the aircraft looking around for this object in the sky. In the aftermath of the events, the RAAF decided to send out a Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft to help the already assembled civilian aircraft that were combing the area. So that no stone would remain unturned, an additional ocean-going ship was also sent out on this extensive sea and air rescue or retrieval mission. An oil slick was soon discovered 18 miles north of Kings Island. It was initially thought to be fuel from the downed aircraft, but it was soon discovered that this had no connection to the events. It was with extremely heavy hearts that the civilians and officers involved in the search had to report that after their 1,000 square mile sweep of the locale, they had found nothing. Not a trace of Frederick Valentich or his plane. It was finally on October the 25th, 1978, that the search was officially called off. Although any of the pilots that had heard the story would invariably keep an eye out for either wreckage or mysterious lights. The Bureau of Air Safety Investigation and the Department of Transport released their findings on the mysterious case in May 1982, four years after the incident, where they established that the reason for the disappearance of the aircraft was to be categorised as has not been determined. This general investigative term further explained that the incident was presumed fatal for Frederick. Five years later, and a mysterious object washes up on the hot beach of Flinders Island, 
This object is a piece of an aircraft engine cowl flap. The Bureau of Air Safety Investigation brought in the expertise of the Royal Navy Research Laboratory to consult on this artifact. The conclusion to this investigation revealed that the cowling had been identified as coming from a Cessna 182 series, which would encompass a range of serial numbers to which Frederick Valentich's aircraft could have been included. Many theories have been hypothesised as to the reason and even possibly the motive behind the disappearance of Valentich. Some of these ideas are absurd and some require more investigation, but alas, we can only use the sources that have been made available to us. Therefore, a lot of conjecture has always been put into these stories to spice them up. A lot of these theories can be subdivided into three main categories. These being faked disappearance, accidental death, and finally, extraterrestrial encounters. In my opinion, it is sad to think that Frederick would stage his own death, and in truth, there is scant evidence to support this idea. In my mind, now in my son, I was sure that he was encountered something very seriously, because he would never go on that radio and compromise his future career as a... Um, the bulk of the theory seems to rest on the small concept that Valentich gave two contradictory reasons for his fateful flight that night to King's Island. On first inquiry, he stated that his intention was to pick up some friends, and his second version was to collect some crayfish from the island. It was discovered that both of these reasons were possibly untrue as he had not made the appropriate arrangements and followed the standard procedures that were necessary to inform King's Island Airport. Considering Valentich's record of not following procedure, it could be possible that either or both reasons are true, and he would have been appropriately reprimanded again for his disregard of the rules, whether intentional or not. The possibility of accidental death cannot be ruled out as it was clear that Frederick was an inexperienced pilot. The evidence of this can be found in the fact that he had only managed to clock up a total of 150 hours of flight. Although not a reflection of his ability, the 150 hours clearly show that he had not been flying a plane for very long and lacked the experience of doing so. If it was not for the fact that he had had an inadequate level of education one could argue that the 150 hours may not have mattered as he could have taken to flying like a duck to water. But clearly this was not the case. I personally don't think that uh, he fabricated the, his disappearance. One popular perception of the clues is that Valentich had become disorientated and was in fact flying upside down. I have a problem with this theory as a simple piece of research will show that although a Cessna can fly upside down, sustained inverted flight will cause the fuel to leak and therefore will stop the fuel from entering the engine. The craft has two fuel tanks that are part of an on-off type of selector and the fuel is gravity fed. Although sometimes at low pressure, a small fuel pump is used to aid the flow. This pump is also used to aid starting the aircraft, takeoff, landing and also for switching to either of the fuel tanks and is not used at all for any sustained period of time. Valentich would never have managed to sustain the flight for the length of time he saw the lights and furthermore he would have first observed the fuel leaking from the craft before he witnessed any strange lights. Another theory is that the area suffers from the optical malady of a tilted horizon, which in turn could have confused our ill-experienced pilot into overcompensating and sending the aircraft into a downward spiral, aptly named a graveyard spiral. This would decrease fuel flow, resulting in the rough idling that was reported to Steve Roby. But this does not explain the strange, mysterious lights. A further proposal to the accidental death conclusion is that the stationary lights that were reported were in fact the planets Venus, Mars, Mercury and the star of Antares. 
I have been in a plane at night, high above the serene blanket of clouds, and looked out of the window at the visible stars. And that is exactly what they look like. The stars do not take on brand new characteristics once you get a few hundred or even a thousand feet above the clouds. I find it incredibly unbelievable and an insult to any pilot who it has been suggested to that they have mistaken a star for anything other than a star. And anyway, this does not include the fact that he was being buzzed by a moving object in an almost cat-and-mouse type manoeuvre. It's approaching, right now from due east towards me. Silence for two seconds. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times, at a time at speeds I could not identify. Two UFO researchers by the names of John W. Aschetti and Paul Norman had heard the final moments of Valentich's exchanges with Steve Roby, and more notably the strange metallic staccato noise that was heard after the transmission had gone quiet for 17 seconds. These final moments, as well as the entire recording, were recorded by air traffic control onto audio tape. The two researchers have managed to get redacted copies of the original voice tapes from the Department of Transport, which they then sent to be analysed by the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, and another further copy was taken to the USA for analysis by Dr Richard F. Haynes, who was a former researcher with NASA Ames and an associate professor of psychology at San Jose State University. After some time, the analysis results concluded that the sound consisted of 36 separate bursts of sound with distinctive start-and-stop audio pulses. Haynes then stated that there was no discernible patterns in time or frequency. This was an unexpected result, and one that no one really understands the reasons or implications of but rest assured it was definitely unexpected and unidentified. After the reports of Frederick's disappearance were made public, many other individuals came forward with their tales of UFO sightings. These individuals have stated that they too had reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky similar to the green light mentioned in the Valentich transcript. A UFO group called Ground Saucer Watch have said that a photograph on the very same day by Roy Manifold depicted a fast-moving object exiting the water near the Cape Otway Lighthouse. Close study of these pictures reveal that they are not clear enough to identify the object, and UFO groups state that they show an unknown flying object of moderate size surrounded by a cloud of vapour or exhaust residue. The background story surrounding the photos is simple. Roy Manifold had set up a time-lapse camera on the shoreline to photograph the setting sun over the shimmering, tranquil waters. After the pictures had been developed, they showed a fast-moving object exiting the water. Manifold believes that the photographs were taken at around 6.47pm. This would place their capture at 20 minutes before Valentich reported seeing the object. Oh, on that night, I decided I'd go up in the, uh, there outside the uh, hut and take the, uh, the sun setting in the, in the beautiful end of the west. Oh, I took a series of photographs, about six in, in all, at around about 15, 20 second intervals, and, uh, and that was it. Further analysis of the images by other UFO groups have led some to believe that the distance that the object had moved between frames relative to clouds in the background indicates that the object was travelling at a speed of around 200 miles per hour. They come back and they said, oh, it's definitely not a, a developing error. It's nothing to do with the, uh, the film or the development of the film on the print, but they couldn't explain what it was and why it was there. It had already been established that Valentich was interested in the UFO and alien phenomenon and would often collect news articles and features on the subject. 
It has even been stated that he had previously spotted a UFO moving away amazingly fast, and he had told his father his worries about what would happen if extraterrestrial craft should ever attack. Still, stay, I uh, believe that he was involved with a, an extraterrestrial. Perhaps Valentich was trying to clock up additional hours of flying experience, or he could possibly have decided to look for UFOs and too afraid to admit it to the air authorities, and therefore lied and offered a more legitimate sounding reason. It could have been his inexperience that led to his demise, or alternatively, he could simply be living a new life somewhere else in the world. As it stands on its own, some people will be able to conclude this story in their mind with a degree of personal certainty. But please hold back on your decision until you have heard the rest of the story, as the disappearance of Frederick Valentich might not be as simple as previously thought. The worst things that might happen to him uh, would have been being abducted by uh, some unknowing civilization and uh, possibly will take we don't know how many years before we'll be able to see him again. In my heart, I do believe that one day I will see him again. The Kaikoura Lights are possibly one of the most important sightings on record, as they have many independent witnesses, were picked up on radar, and even filmed by a television crew. But are these events in some way connected with the disappearance of Frederick Valentich? It was December the 21st, 1978, and the time was around 12.10am when the first of the sightings occurred. Radar bowls situated in New Wellington, New Zealand, picked up what air traffic controllers could only describe as an unexplained blip. A local pilot by the name of Vern Powell was at the same time piloting a Safe Air Limited Argosy 4 engine freighter aircraft, which was flying southward and was carrying its cargo of newspapers from Wellington to Christchurch and then northward from Christchurch to its home base in Blenheim. The aircraft began observing a series of strange lights around their craft, which seemed to track along with their aircraft for several minutes before disappearing and then later reappearing in a new location. The UFO was described as very large and had five white flashing lights that were visible mounted to its body. Some witnesses said that they could see some little discs drop from the UFO and then disappear. The pilots described some of the lights to be roughly the size of a house and others as small but flashing brilliantly and rhythmically. I think at the time I described it as being the size of a house burning in the sky and that's actually what it looked like, like a, a, a house fire, that sort of intensity of colour but uh, a little bit pear-shaped. Powell described the objects as anything but plane-like in nature. Douglas Mabin, who heads New Zealand's Mount John Observatory, stated that in his opinion... People have been able to give us um, a fair enough uh, description of the time and the position in the sky. They see these things, we're able to work it out. And every report I've had, we've had a, that sort of description, we've been able to identify it. The reports of these have been going on for so many years now, and if there's... Uh, such an intelligent uh, set of people about us coming from outside the Earth that have been coming around all these times, I think by now they would have landed and introduced themselves. The sighting had attracted a number of interested parties, despite the official explanations disregarding the witnesses. One particular person who was not convinced by the astronomical explanation was a reporter for an Australian television station by the name of Quentin Fogarty. Fogarty's station had requested that seeing that he was in New Zealand already, 
that he should cover the story of Vern Powell's sighting. The press and media were still very much interested in UFO sightings, as it was only two months previous that Valentich had disappeared, not far from the sighting area. A week or two prior to this flight, we had heard about the uh, Valentich incident in Australia, where uh, Valentich was flying from the mainland to Tasmania and radioed back that he was being zapped by bright lights and everything. And then the audio went dead. They've never found him. They've never found any records. They've never found anything. And I think when Captain Bill Startup got the okay to fly off course towards this object, I think the feeling was amongst all of us, are we going to get zapped? You know, are we, is, is something going to happen? Are we going to be taken away? Uh, so it, there was some anxiety there. The Melbourne TV station was therefore trying to capitalise on the UFO interest and the sightings that had been generated by the unexplained and already much-publicised Valentich disappearance and its possible UFO connection. I thought the job would be interesting. It was a good story. We were following up a strong UFO sighting. I had an interest in that. Um, but I didn't for one second even begin to imagine that we would get involved in something ourselves. December the 31st. 1978. Fogarty assembled his film crew, which consisted of New Zealand cameraman David Crockett and his wife, the sound recordist Nari Crockett. The Crocketts had interviewed the radar controllers and a pilot who were witnesses to the sightings. Fogarty decided to go one step further with his small documentary and arrange a flight on one of the newspaper flights. The group set out on December the 31st and the witnesses on board the plane during the flight south included the flight crew of two, pilot Captain William Startup, with 23 years of experience and 14,000 hours of flying time, and the co-pilot Robert Gard, with 7,000 hours of flying time. Both Captain Startup and Guard were aware of the sightings of December the 21st, but they had not been witnesses. During the flight back north, Nary was replaced by reporter Dennis Grant from Christchurch. As far as all the crew of the Argosy aircraft were concerned, this was essentially a routine newspaper transport flight from Wellington to Christchurch, followed by a flight to home base in Blenheim. The only difference in this flight was the added presence of the TV film crew on board. Fogarty and Crockett hoped to film proof of what Powell had reported. Fogarty realised that the chances of seeing what Powell saw ten days earlier were remote. Although everything was in place, Quentin Fogarty still had some misgivings about the endeavour. He stated, There were stages there where I was very, very frightened. I mean, I thought, well, if I was to die, or if in fact I was to be removed from that aircraft in some shape or form, then it wasn't going to be a painful process. And you can't, I can't really explain why I felt that. It's just a feeling I had. The flight path was long, and at about 12.05 a.m., while the plane was crossing the Cook Strait, Captain Startup and his co-pilot first observed some oddly behaving lights ahead of them, near the Kaikoura coast. They had flown this route many, many times before and were familiar with the lights and landmarks along the coast. These lights would appear and seem to project a beam of light downwards towards the sea and then disappear, only to reappear in another location. The number of UFOs would change throughout the encounter. Sometimes there was only one, sometimes none, and sometimes several. The pilots and co-pilots began to discuss what they were seeing. They could not identify these strange lights or their odd pattern of activity, which made the captain think of the kind of manoeuvres adopted 
by our own air organisations when in a search operation mode. It was 12.12 when it was decided that they should contact Wellington Air Traffic Control Centre radar to establish if there were any aircraft near Kaikoura. Co-pilot guard was flying the aircraft at this time, so Captain Startup communicated with Geoffrey Corsa at the WATCC. Do you have any targets showing on the Kaikoura Peninsula range? asked Captain Startup. Corsa had been preoccupied but had noticed targets appearing and disappearing in that region for half an hour. There are targets in your one o'clock position at uh, 13 miles, appearing and disappearing. At the present moment they're not showing, but were about a minute ago. The co-pilot responded, If you've got a chance, would you keep an eye on them? Certainly, replied Geoffrey Corsa. Fogarty and his crew had set up a camera in the cargo hold of the aircraft to do a piece-to-camera shot for the documentary. This involved filming Fogarty explaining to the viewers that he was on board the same aircraft that had sighted the UFOs ten days previous, and that the TV crew would remain alert for anything unusual. We're now approaching the Clarence River, where the highest concentration of UFOs was sighted on the morning of December the 21st. It's a beautiful clear night outside, and naturally we'll be looking out for anything unusual. Fogarty started to do a second piece to camera immediately after the first, while the equipment was still set up. During the second piece, he had planned to say that the plane had landed at Christchurch and they hadn't seen anything. This was a good way of economically filming in advance and so avoiding any tedious setting up of a similar shot once they had landed. However, he did not get the chance to record the second segment, because Captain Startup climbed part way down to the cargo hold and told the crew to get up here fast. At about 12.15 the TV crew came onto the flight deck where the air crew then pointed out to the TV crew the strange lights that they had observed near Kaikoura. The very first thing we saw was these sort of balls of light that would just appear in the sky. And I mean, it was really just looking through small windows at a very, very black sky and seeing pulsating lights um, that started usually as a very, very small pinprick of light and then would glow into a, like a, a great globe of light. At approximately 12.16, the first radar visual sighting had occurred. WATCC reported to the flight crew that a target briefly appeared 12 o'clock to you at 10 miles. Startup reported that he looked ahead and saw a light where none should have been located and described it as follows. It was white and not very brilliant and it did not change colour or flicker. To me it looked like the tail light of an aircraft. I'm not sure how long we saw this for Probably not very long. I did not get a chance to judge its height relative to the aircraft. The unidentified target was not located on the second sweep of the radar. It was 20 seconds later when WATCC reported strong target showing at 11 o'clock at 3 miles. This new target lasted for four radar rotations and 48 seconds after that WATCC reported a target just left of 9 o'clock at 2 miles. Captain Startup stated that he looked out of his left window and saw nothing in that direction except stars. 85 seconds later, WATCC reported a target at 10 o'clock at 12 miles. Again, the captain reported no visual sighting. Captain Startup stated that he had the impression from the series of targets that were being relayed to him by the WATCC that some object that was initially ahead of the plane had travelled past the left side. He decided to make an orbit, 360 degree turn, to find out if they could see anything at their left side or behind. The captain sought permission to make a left-hand orbit and the WATCC responded that it was okay and reported 
There is another target that just appeared on your left side about one mile. Briefly, then it disappeared again. The captain responded that We haven't got him in sight as yet, but we do pick up the lights around Kaikora. The aircrew was still observing anomalous lights near the coast. The plane was making its left turn in a circle. This process would take around two minutes to complete, and it was at this point that the radio crackled into life as the WATCC reported that The target I mentioned a moment ago is still just around five o'clock to you. Stationary. During this turn, Corsa had noticed radar targets continuing to appear and then disappear close to Kaikoura. We've just heard from Wellington Radar that we've uh, got an object about a mile behind us and it's following us. Let's hope they're friendly. Fogarty was in a position whereby he could watch the skies and stated that he continuously saw anomalous lights over Kaikoura. That is, they appeared to be higher than the lights along the coastline at the town of Kaikoura. It was now 12.27 and the plane was on a southward heading along its original path. It was along this portion of the route that the WATCC reported Target is at 12 o'clock at 3 miles. Captain Startup stated Thank you, we pick it up. It's got a flashing light. Subsequently, the captain reported it as a couple of very bright blue-white lights flashing regularly at a rapid rate. They looked like the strobe lights of a Boeing 737. The cameraman of the film crew had come across some difficulties when trying to capture the objects on film. There you can see the one to the right of us is still reasonably bright. We can see them, but it's just about impossible to film them. Because by the time the, the cameraman gets his focus, knows exactly where they are, they disappear again. The size of his camera and the small seat that he was sitting on between the pilot and the co-pilot made it hard for him to film the lights without sticking his camera lens in front of whoever was flying the aircraft. Despite the challenges, Crockett did manage to get some footage with his Bolex H16 EBM electric drive 16mm movie camera using Fujicolor 8425 ASA 400 color reversal film and his Kern 16 to 100mm zoom lens. The footage depicts the image of a blue-white light against a black background, and then Crockett quickly turns the camera to the left and films some of the dim red lights of the meters of the instrument panel. The blue-white light makes other appearances within the footage, but there is no references to time or location for these. Although there are no reference points for these other appearances, the durations of the clips of film of the blue-white light are 5, 1.3 and 1.9 seconds, which could be interpreted as slow pulsing on and off. The footage then goes on to show five seconds of dim images that show the distant shoreline of Kaikoura with some brighter lights above the shoreline. Again, there is a similar problem with the audio commentary that was provided by Fogarty, as we have no time indicators, we can only assume their place in the sequence of events from the actual content of his statements. Fogarty recorded the following statement. Now we have a couple right in front of us. Very, very bright. That was more of an orangey-ready light. It flashed on and then off again. We have a firm convert here at the moment. Quentin Fogarty, when interviewed for an early 80s television programme investigating the sightings, had this to say on the events. And by the time David and myself got onto the flight deck, I could see two bright lights, and in retrospect it now appears that this object was quite low, and in fact was reflecting on the water. We just kept looking at this one bright object that looked uh, like a very bright star outside our starboard window. So we turned towards the object, and at this time, David was continuing to film. And at one stage, he said to me, he got very excited and turned around to me and said, you know, it's got a brightly lit bottom and a sort of transparent sphere on top. 
and I was doing a tape commentary at the time and I remember saying that that sounded like a classic flying saucer shape and I think it was the last person to see it was that I looked out the right hand side of the aircraft and looked, peered right down and this object just went below the aircraft and disappeared. Um, nobody connected with this case has been prepared to say that uh, they are extraterrestrial because I don't think you can ever say anything is extraterrestrial until you can actually physically hold on to it or meet with the inhabitants or you know all the thing lands in Central Park and you beam it live television around the world and then people would say it was hoaxed anyway. Um, but there are a number of possibilities and I think that probably the strongest of all the possibilities is that it is extraterrestrial. The Flight North It was around 1.01 when the aircraft finally landed and the newspapers were unloaded. It would take a further hour for all the other pre-flight preparations to take place for the return trip to Blenheim. It was originally the intention of the TV crew to get off the plane and spend the rest of the night in Christchurch. But it was felt that because of the sightings and the fact that Crockett complained because he had felt he had not obtained much film footage, he and Fogarty decided to return northward with the plane to obtain more footage if possible. Neri had been quite frightened by the sightings and refused to get back onto the plane. Therefore, Fogarty decided to invite a reporter, Dennis Grant, who lived in Christchurch, to fly northward. Fogarty and Crockett decided to do another piece to camera that was the complete antithesis of the previous one they had tried to do in the cargo hold. We're now in the radar room at Christchurch Airport. It's about uh, quarter to two, and in about another 20 minutes uh, we intend to take off again in the Argosy and uh, retrace the route we took only a few moments earlier. Uh, we've just heard from Wellington radar that there are still targets in the Kaikoura area. So this time we're hoping to get better film than we did last time and uh, all I can say is we'll see what happens. At about 2.16am the plane took off from Christchurch. As before David Crockett was seated between the pilot and the co-pilot and Grant and Fogarty were in the cargo hold during takeoff. At around 3,000 feet the air crew and Crockett could see a very bright light ahead at about 30 degrees to the right. In fact, they were actually looking at two lights, one above the other, the upper being brighter. Captain Startup turned on the weather radar in the mapping mode, and this picked up a strong target in the direction of the light at a distance of around 18 nm. The pilot and co-pilot agreed that the size of the radar target on the screen was about three to five times larger than one would get from a large boat. Startup's initial impression was that he was looking at the moon, a slightly squashed moon. Then he realised it couldn't be the moon, which was, in fact, far in the west. He described it as a white sphere with a tinge of orange that was lightly flattened at the top and bottom. Gard compared it to a squashed orange. The colour was similar to that of a sodium vapour lamp. Fogarty and Grant had now come up to the flight deck, and they also saw the bright lights. Looking over towards the right of the aircraft, and we have an object confirmed by Wellington Radar. It's been following us for quite a while. It's about four miles away, and it looks like a very faint star, but then it emits a very bright white and green light. I must admit, this is uh, just a little bit frightening. Grant said his initial impression was of a white yellow sphere, like a ping pong ball in a dark room and illuminated by a single ray of light. Grant, who was standing behind Startup, also had a good look at the radar screen. He said that in his mind there was no doubt that the direction of the radar target, as indicated by the well-defined angled lines on the radar screen, was the same as the direction of the lights. He also noted a light beneath the main bright light, which might have been a reflection from a cloud. Fogarty recorded his immediate impressions in several statements. We are now about three minutes out of Christchurch, and on our starboard side, we can see two very bright lights, one much brighter than the other. It's like a very, very bright star, and just below it is another light, not quite so bright. 
two or three minutes pass, then he records, Those lights appear to be travelling with us. They are still off the starboard wing. The brighter light is still above the other, and it has moved slightly ahead of the other. It is extremely bright, much brighter than any of the other lights in the sky. Fogarty stated that the light would dim and brighten. He said it would occasionally go behind a cloud, which is a possibility since there was a cloud layer that evening. It is lighting up the clouds around it, he said. Crockett's film unfortunately only picked up a single light that is bright enough to overexpose the film on most frames. This could mean that the lesser light was too dim to be filmed, or simply a reflection in a cloud, or in the ocean. For the next ten minutes they continued in an ascending straight line. The radar target initially moved radially to a distance on the order of 8 to 10 nm. The object was travelling a bit faster than the aircraft. Then it slowly dropped back to the right, finally leaving the radar screen at the limit of its sweep. At 2.26am, Fogarty recorded the following statement. We must be about 30 miles out of Christchurch, according to Bill's startup. It came as close as 10 miles to us. At the same time, Bob Gard reported to Wellington that the plane was about 32 nm from Christchurch, at about 11,500 feet, and that there was a great big target sitting at 3 o'clock to us, position about 12 nm away. During all this, Crockett filmed the light using his 100mm zoom lens. Crockett started filming from the middle seat, but got out of his seat and crouched behind the co-pilot. Crockett filmed about five and a half minutes of footage at a frame rate of 10 frames per second. The objects that were captured on the film after viewing them looked roughly elliptical and tilted at about 45 degrees to the horizontal. Then they become more or less elliptical or triangular, then followed by an almost circular appearance. At around 2.29am, the plane had reached its final altitude of 13,000 feet and Captain Startup decided to turn the aircraft towards the light to see what would happen. Startup had the impression that the light was travelling parallel to the plane. He initiated a turn at the rate of a two-minute orbit and watched the instrument panel. If any of his meters on the instrument panel had indicated any signs of abnormal operation, he would turn back immediately. However, all the meters indicated normal operation. Startup continued to turn the craft and was surprised to find that he couldn't get directly facing the object. The light had stopped its forward motion. It was in Startup's opinion that the light was taking some kind of avoidance action that would prevent him from flying towards it. As the plane flew in the southeast direction, the light moved towards the rear. The co-pilot said that the light moved so that it was between the plane and the Banks Peninsula. Shortly after the right turn, Crockett decided to get his larger Sun Macro Zoom 80-240mm lens. He obtained the lens from the cargo hold and installed it on his camera using a flashlight. Unfortunately, because of the very dark conditions and the vibrating nature of the plane, he did not manage to install the lens properly which resulted in most of the images being out of focus. Fortunately, some of the images are almost close to focus. The images showed an extremely bright light that appeared to have a large, roundish bottom with a smaller top, with an overall shape almost like a bell. The plane returned to its original track, reaching Kaikoura East at 2.46am. Fogarty recorded the following message. We've just now passed Kaikoura, and there's been no further activity. There are pinpoints of light in the sky, but nothing's been confirmed on Wellington radar. I, for one, am hoping that we've seen enough, and the rest of our journey back to Blenheim will be uneventful. I've had quite enough of UFOs for one night. Then suddenly, at 2.51am, a bright light appeared ahead of the plane. 
The captain called Wellington to ascertain if there was a radar target in that direction. Wellington reported, A strong target at 12 o'clock at 20 miles. The plane reported back to Wellington, We have that one also, and quite a good visual display at the moment. It looks like a collection of lights. Fogarty recorded the following message. About 30 seconds after that last statement, we have another one right in front of us. Very bright, seems to be a long ways away. And another one just to the left of it. That one flashed extremely brightly. They've both now faded. The other one's flashing again. It's giving off an orange flashing light. It looks like an aircraft beacon. It's moving off. It's extremely bright. It fades and it's dropped. It seems to have just dropped at an incredible speed and it seems to be rolling and turning. In fact, one light has another beside it. Oh, I don't know. I really don't know what's going on. It appears to be over the hills. There appears to be a whole cluster of them, in fact. At this point in the recording, about one minute after the sighting started, Crockett yells to Fogarty. The tape recorder picks up his voice in spite of the engine noise. I can't see anything. Then Fogarty resumes his commentary. You can see orange and red along the lights. There's one particular one that keeps flashing to the right-hand side of... You can see three distinct lights. In fact, it looks very much like the same sort of pattern we saw when we came over the Kaikoura coast on the way down. But there wasn't as much flashing. It really is quite strange. After this rare and somewhat frightening cluster of sightings, the flashing lights disappeared. But there were some other appearances of lights and complementary radar targets. However, sightings happened rapidly and Crockett got no more film of the unidentified lights. The last portion of Crockett's film was of the plane approaching and landing at the Blenheim Airport at around 3.05am. This is possibly the only known UFO sighting event which combines so many multiple airborne witnesses with airplane radar, recorded comments and colour film footage. The fact that the lights moved in response to actions taken by the plane is an indicator of intelligent control. Is it possible that considering both the Valentich incident and the Kaikoura lights together, that maybe Valentich could possibly have witnessed the same thing and fell foul of their erratic flight? Or even he could have been distracted by a similar display of lights and plummeted into the sea? Unfortunately, I can only provide you with the stories behind these events. You will have to make up your own mind regarding how it fits into your beliefs and philosophies. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight.
Go to occulteriaofalbion.com or search Occulteria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.